Well, Merry Christmas to all of you this morning, and thank you for coming to worship with us today. I know it's cold outside, and I know that it's been a very busy season for you, and perhaps even a very busy morning for you. And I know at some level, uh, I know first world problems, right? It was a sacrifice for you to be here today. Um, But honestly, as I have been in here and uh, going through a a baptism ceremony earlier and uh, just seeing your faces and greeting at the door and singing together, I I can honestly say that there's nowhere else I'd rather be on a Christmas Sunday such as this than right here with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. So Merry Christmas to you. I'm not going to keep you long. I was thinking preaching for just about 75, 85 minutes, if that's okay. Um, But in seriousness, I do want to share from God's Word just a, a few thoughts here this morning. But before I I really dive in in earnest, I have to issue uh, a bit of a correction. Um, Last Sunday during the sermon, I I accidentally misquoted the late, great Dennis Kinlaw. And for those of you who don't know Dennis Kinlaw, he was a longtime president of Asbury College, founder of the Francis Asbury Society, uh, the mentor to my mentor, so he was sort of my grand mentor, I guess, in a sense. Uh, But many of you have benefited from uh, Dennis Kinlaw's ministry and his books and um, just a tremendous uh, man of God uh, whose impact um, in the sort of our Wesleyan Methodist uh, world um, will never be fully appreciated this side of heaven. Um, And here I went and misquoted him last week by using the expression monotheism with a twist. That was the word I used, twist. Um, And that was a misquote. Uh, The quote I was referring to comes from his brilliant book, Let's Start with Jesus. Some of you have read that book. Um, If you have not read that book, whether you are a believer or a skeptic, regardless of who you are, where you are in your journey of faith, or perhaps pre-faith or post-faith, I don't know where you are, but um, I would put that book at the top of my uh, 2023 recommended reading list. If you have not read Dennis Kinlaw's Let's Start with Jesus, then um, uh, you're missing out. It, It truly gives... Uh, the reader a sense of what makes Christianity unique. And uh, that's kind of what I want to focus on this morning. But in that first chapter, uh, Kinlaw refers to monotheism with a difference. You see the, the corrected title to the sermon in the bulletin there, monotheism with a difference, not with a twist. Although it's the same meaning, the same, the same difference there. So even though I got the word wrong, I think you get the gist. So, uh, so I start with a my bad. Uh, for those of you that want to hold me accountable. Um, But regardless of the actual quote, what is Kinlaw's point? What does he mean when he talks about monotheism with a difference? Well, if you were to take a a view, a, a panorama, as it were, of the history of the world's religions, you could essentially boil them down to two different kinds of religions. You have one which would be considered polytheistic or perhaps pantheistic, which means many gods or all God, and monotheistic, one God. Perhaps that's a bit of an oversimplification, I get it, but you can, in essence, boil everything down to those two categories. The first category sees all of creation as an unbroken whole, with the divine, whatever the divine is, it's part of the whole. It's all bound together. And, and, or perhaps the divine is merely the name for the whole. So gods are in the whole, or the whole is God in some form or fashion. And this represents all of the world's religions from pretty much the beginning of time that were a deviation from uh, what we hold to be the one true religion. From ancient paganism to mystical spirituality to nature worship to modern day new age thought, it all kind of fits in that 
basket, as it were. Now, the second group comes in three distinct expressions, and each of those, of course, is rooted in history, that being Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And all those three historic religions trace their roots back to, to Israel, back to Abraham. All three see nature quite differently from the first category. They see nature as not something that is divine, but rather the created expression of the one supreme God who transcends creation. He's not bound up in his creation. His creation only exists because of him. They are not mutually dependent. All three monotheistic religions hold that to confuse the divine with his creation is essentially idolatry, which is, of course, forbidden by the one transcendent, distinct from his creation, God. Indeed, in the Old Testament, repeated all throughout from the beginning to the end, you shall have no other gods before me. God is very clear about his relationship to his creation and his people's relationship to him. The Lord is God, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord alone. Nature proclaims the glory of God, but nature is not the glory of God. It's merely a reflection of his glory. He alone is God. He alone is to be worshiped. But where Christianity joins the other two monotheistic religions in the world by affirming the oneness of God, it departs from them in a very radical and significant and irreconcilable way as to what that oneness means. You see, Christianity affirms that within the oneness of God, there are personal differentiations. And why would it affirm this? Why, why would Christianity arrive on the scene and say, well, we, we break from these, this view of monotheism as good, even Jewish people, breaking from their, their sense of monotheism to, to acknowledge that within the oneness of God, there's personal differentiations. Why would Christianity ever even think to do that? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus. And which begs the question here today, what are you and I as Christians actually celebrating this morning? Now, I mentioned the other week that uh, my family and I have been working through what we deem to be the best Christmas movies that Hollywood has to offer. And we've nearly concluded our month-long binge of those movies. Uh, I told you the other day that the list has grown to the point where we have to start even before Thanksgiving dinner is done, which to me is you know, borderline sacrilege. But we, we do what we have to do sometimes. It's a very practical you know, issue that if we want to get them all in, we have to start earlier. And so we've, we've watched all the movies, save perhaps one or maybe half of another one we didn't get finished, but whatever. We've gone through them all. And, and I was wondering, for those of you who, like, like us, go through the Christmas movies every year, what is the single most recurring sort of theme or idea that you could probably trace throughout them all. Any guesses of what that might be? Um, so what did you say? Being home for Christmas? Okay, good. Love? Okay. Reconciliation? Those are all those are really great themes, but you're all wrong. <laughs> As I watch the movies and listen to the messages, what I am hearing the movies say is that the most important thing is Christmas spirit. Christmas spirit. What in the world is Christmas spirit? Well, if you listen to the movies, they'll say, they make you think Christmas spirit is something like a warm feeling of kindness, right? The feels of Christmas, the, the cheer of Christmas, the, the, perhaps even the, the feeling or even sometimes the action of goodwill towards others. That's common in, in the movies, isn't it? Perhaps Christmas spirit is belief in the invisible or in mystery or even in the magic of Christmas. Yeah, it is, does depend on the movies you watch, Barbara. You're right. 
Oh, I watch them all. I watch all the good ones. At its best, at its best, Christmas spirit is how someone acts who loves Christmas and wants to show it by being kind. That's, that's typically the Christmas spirit, right? But at its worst, Christmas spirit is nothing but a label for the motivation to decorate for Christmas <laughs> or to, to listen to Christmas music or to wear the ugly sweaters or to drink the eggnog. I have to have the feels in order to do the things, right? That's how a lot of people view Christmas time. But I, I think you and I both know that, that it means more than that, doesn't it? Christmas means a whole bunch more than just having the Christmas feels. We aren't celebrating a mood here today. We're not celebrating even a season on our calendars. We're not celebrating a feeling. Today is not about magic or nostalgia, and it's not even about family. And I know as a Christian who values family, Christmas is not primarily about family. Many of those things are, are great. They're well, they're good. They're not wrong to acknowledge and celebrate, but they're not the why behind it. This past Friday, just a couple of days ago, was probably not the best day in the, the history of the Scribner household. It was one of those days where uh, everything came apart or felt like it was coming apart. We had uh, a, a, uh, an unexpected trip to the doctor for a, a sick child with a fever and uh, later on, another child with the sore throat and another child with an upset stomach. And it was all just kind of coming left and right, one after the other. Our Christmas tree nearly caught fire because of a problem with an extension cord plug-in thing. And the cold weather was hitting and our fireplace unit was, not, was on the fritz. And it's not blowing hot air. And, um, you know, I, I'm trying to get prepared for last night and this morning. And I'm tired and stressed out and feel like I'm fighting something myself. And... Um, it was really hard in the midst of all these things to feel the Christmas spirit, as it were. It was really hard to, to, to get into the mood. In fact, all Advent, I've been lamenting to myself and even at times to my kids, to my everlasting shame, that it doesn't feel like Christmas. And, and I asked myself, what am I, waiting, what am I wanting to feel? What is the, this feeling that I'm or we are pursuing that makes it what it is? I heard Becca jokingly tell her mom on the phone that Christmas was falling apart. She said it tongue-in-cheek, of course. It's not falling apart, but it's just this feel. That's the feeling. If we're going on feelings, Christmas is falling apart. The wheels are coming off. It's not what we had hoped it would be. But my question is, and it's sort of a roundabout way of getting to my point, the question is this. If everything went bad, even this morning as we wrap up the service and we're heading home and things don't go your way for whatever reason, Someone lets you down or something breaks or goes wrong or you don't get what you wanted or fill in the blank. If everything went bad this morning, if there were no presents and there were no trees and there, were, there was no cheer, if, if, if none of the things went your way, would there still be a reason to celebrate? That's the question. Does Christmas still have meaning when everything else falls apart? If the answer is yes, then why? Why does it matter? We're trying to drill down to the heart of things. Why does it matter? Why are we here this morning? The answer to that question is the exact same answer to the question of what makes Christianity unique. Why Christianity affirms and presents and proclaims boldly to the world as a matter of utmost importance and urgency. 
It's worldview shattering, worldview establishing vision of monotheism with a difference. Why is it monotheism with a difference? Why does Christmas matter? The answer, of course, is Jesus. He's not just one among many reasons to celebrate the season. He is the reason. He's not just one of the many gifts that God gives to mankind. He is the gift. And as much as we love the lights and the treats and the desserts and the decorations and the music and the parties and the sentiment and the feels, none of those, in the end, have any ultimate significance because all that matters is Jesus. Last night we looked at John chapter 1 and the things that John said there about life and light. But if we were to hit the rewind button and go back just a few verses to verse 1, what would John say to start his gospel? Well, we read it last night. I'm going to read it again. John 1, 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. Now, when you hear in the beginning, where does your mind automatically go? In the Bible. Genesis. In fact, the very first verse of the very first chapter in Genesis, the, the creation account. You go back to Genesis 1.1 that begins with, in the beginning, God. But John's purpose in echoing these words here in his introduction is not to just simply parrot those words and ideas that are already contained there. No, he, he refers to those words, he echoes those words in order to expand upon them. He's not just repeating established worldview. He is expanding upon it and helping us to see the deeper truth behind it. He's not just revealing that God existed before all things. We know that already. Thank you, Genesis 1.1. We know that before time and, and matter and the universe and the created order came into being, into existence, God existed. We know that he was in the beginning. So John's not just telling us something we already know. He's not just telling us that God is God alone or that he is transcendent before and above and over and outside his creation. Those things are all established and affirmed throughout the Old Testament. We know that he is the creator and we acknowledge him as such. Now, John wants us to understand something about the very nature of God himself. Something that you and I, as part of this created order, can only know because it was revealed. That is the radical implications of the person of Jesus Christ. That God is interpersonal within himself. God and his word were there together at the beginning. It wasn't God and then his word. God and, yes, God and then creation. But it was God and his word and then creation. That's huge. That's everything to the Christian faith. Jesus is not part of the created order. He's not just another guy like you or me. He is the word of God, the only begotten son of God, who was there with God in the beginning. Not just with God, but was God and is God. God's word is not some impersonal expression or metaphor. His word is a fully divine person, equal to the father himself. He is the son the only begotten one, true God of true God. He's the one, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter one, verse three, the one who radiates God's own glory and expresses God's very character. He's everything God has ever had to say about himself from eternity past in a person. And he has come 
to make God known. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. And what has he revealed? Well, he has revealed that the transcendent God who stands outside of time and creation, who alone is God, he's not some sort of unitary singularity, some sort of monad. No, he has revealed that God is essentially a family of persons. (laughs) Insert mind-blown emoji. He's not some singularity, some simple thing. He's a family, a communion of persons. And we know this only because the Son has made it known. Tradition holds that in his final hours upon the earth, with his final dying breath, John Wesley raised his hands and said twice before he died, the best of all is God with us. The best of all is God with us. Man, I hope my dying words are just in the same galaxy as that. I shudder to think what's going to come out of my mouth when God calls me home. (laughs) I hope it's something that in some small way points us to what all of this is all about. What all of life is about. The only thing that is ultimately real or true that has any meaning or impact or significance to our existence on this little blue planet in the middle of a great big universe. I hope that I say something is even remotely meaningful or as profound profound as that. Emmanuel, God with us. And we know from the scriptures that it's not just God with us, but God as us and God for us. And even if God could have his way in our lives, God in us. Not in some generic, you know, pantheistic sense that God is somehow in everything so that everything is divine. That's not what the Bible ever teaches. No, he wants to be in you personally. Like a relationship. A person in a person. Persons who share life who share communion, who are in the other. He wants to be in you in that way, in your mind, in your heart, in your life, to make you part of his family, part of the family. The one, Ephesians 3.15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The one who is three, come to dwell among and within you and me. My prayer is that that would be the blessed truth at the heart of your Christmas, but at the heart of your life. God in you. Yes, God with you, God as you, God for you. We connect the cross and the manger always. But the goal is for God to be in you, and you in him. May that be what you celebrate today. Merry Christmas indeed. Let us pray. Thank you for the great truth 
that it was out of love that creation came into existence. And so it was also out of love that recreation has been made a reality through a babe in a manger who had a direct line from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, from a manger to a cross, to the grave and to the sky. It was all part of your plan from before the creation of the world. You always had it in mind to come dwell among your people, for you to be our God and for us to be yours. Lord, may that be what permeates every second of our day today, and not just today, but every day of life. The, that God is one who is three, is the single most tr true truth there is. You are ultimate reality. It's the only real truth. Lord, would you make your truth a part of our lives today and us a part of yours? Thank you for the opportunity to spend these few moments together here today. I pray a Christmas blessing, the blessing of the incarnation of the Son of God over these people. Lord, may you remain at the center of it all. We pray in your name. Amen.